Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. I have here with me Miss Barbara McKay. Say hi, Barb. Hello, Rangane. And I'm Rangane. We are excited to be back with you for episode four of our podcast series. And we have some exciting news slash update. We are climbing the ladder of legitimacy in the podcast world and have found a home um, for our podcast. And you can now find us um, on Spotify uh, under either Musing Out Loud or under Uncovering COVID. If you put in either of those search terms, our podcast will come up. And just so everyone woo-hoo. knows, woo-hoo, we're <laughs> celebrating. <laughs> just so everyone knows, the official name of our podcast uh, is actually Musing Out Loud, a multi-gen podcast for change. And our season one is entitled Uncovering COVID-19 Opportunities for Growth and Evolution, a Facilitator's Response. So today yeah. we are... And not sure exactly what we're going to do in season two, but we're definitely going to focus in on the multi-gen thing. Uh, yeah, so stay tuned. change for leaders, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little teaser for season two to keep you all, keep you all interested. Um, so today we are doing our fourth episode, and episode four is on the role of empathy in an epidemic. We felt like this is a timely and important topic to dive into. Hmm. Yes, and... Uh, if you did listen to the last couple of podcasts um, last week, I broke down in tears over empathy and I have been experiencing huge amounts of empathy and I know Rangane has as well. And the empathy uh, stretches out to vast differences in the world. Uh, everything from colleagues in Asia who are in high rise apartments and have to, exit their door the minute they leave their their home they have to put a mask on they've got many multi-generational family living situations and have to put up with each other (laughs) on an ongoing basis and and that's not actually that different from what they've lived before but the empathy sort of stretches out to for me in particular for all those situations where i i don't have those circumstances currently And I'll say more about that later, but I think part of the empathy is that I have had similar circumstances. And so I can empathize and relate to some of the very, very difficult circumstances people are experiencing. And when we think about our groups that we work with, uh, the fact that they are not able to really read each other's body language. And so I have empathy for all the ways that people are not able to connect So we really want to talk about what is the role of empathy for us as process facilitators, coaches, um, mediators, et cetera. And we know that empathy helps us connect more deeply with people. um, And it happens. There's literally a physical response that happens in me. And Rangane is going to talk a little bit about types of empathy. But when we are empathetic, when people can sense it in the way we, our tone of voice, in even our, you know, even the sounds we make in response to what someone is sharing, and uh, it can build trust and confidence. And we need to do that more than ever as facilitators in the virtual environment because people can't always see. But if you are the one that has the video camera on you and you have the right tone of voice, 
um, there's so much grief and processing of uh, the huge changes that we're all going through that it becomes super important. And so Rangane is going to tell us, I like, I'm, I'm trying not to like, you know, get empathetic really quick. You got it. You have to master this skill. Um, it's urgent. It's urgent. <laughs> get on board. Anyway. So oh, with that, I'm going to pass it over to Rangane to talk a little bit about, she studied a lot about empathy. And so now we're going to give you the theory of empathy. <laughs> We're mixing it up today. So um, I, I think, I, I, yes, absolutely. Empathy is one of the most, um, something I value strongly and something that I'm very passionate about. I think it's one of the most powerful tools. It's one of the most powerful superpowers that we as human beings can employ in times of um, normalcy and in, times, and, and in times of crisis. And right now, I think there is a call to empathy in a way that we have perhaps not seen before. Um, there is a, a mutual colleague that Barb and I have um, who is currently residing in Saudi Arabia who had said, you know, COVID-19 is sort of this giant um, experiment in teaching everybody a little bit more about empathy. And I thought, wow, that's, that's so profound. That's so profound because it really is teaching us how to connect with people in situations that we might have never imagined ourselves in. And all of a sudden, here we are together at home in sheltering in place um, for those of us who have a, a place to shelter in. And for those of us who don't have a place, um, for us to be thinking about those people and what that means for them and their, and their families. So just to offer a little in terms of the, by way of theory of empathy, there is a psychologist by the name of Daniel Goleman, who many of you may know, um, know from the theory of emotional intelligence. He sort of popularized it. And he talks about three different types of empathy. And the first type of empathy that he talks about is cognitive empathy. And that's more in the realm of awareness, having an awareness, understanding someone else's perspective. And this is a really inc incredibly important part of not only creating and maintaining a good connection and communication, but also cultivating it. The second type of empathy that he talks about is called emotional empathy. And this is probably the one that most of us are familiar with. It's the sensing in yourself um, someone else's feelings or emotions. So really sitting with, sensing with, being with what is coming up for someone else emotionally. And then the last type of empathy that he talks about is called empathetic concern. And this one is actually quite interesting to me because sort of the, the love child of the former two. So empathetic concern goes beyond just understanding or perspective taking, goes beyond just sharing the feeling that someone else might be having in a moment. And it actually moves us to take action. We are so taken taken back by someone's perspective and the feeling that we're then actually moved to, to take action and help however we can. And Barb and I were just sort of musing out loud a few minutes ago about what, what is the role of not just empathy, but of empathetic concern right now? Where are people being called in society to take action? And not just out of kindness and goodness of their heart, but because they have genuinely connected whether through a news story, whether through um, someone else sharing a story through a family member or a friend, um, reading about something somewhere, but learning about a perspective so far, so, so far outside of their own 
and really connecting to the feeling that someone else is having that perhaps it's, it's a space of pain, right? Someone's experiencing great pain or great grief right now. So connecting with the perspective and the pain and then being so moved by that that they actually take action. Barb, what are your thoughts on that, on the notion of empathetic concern and how that's kind of playing out in society right now? Well, I was thinking about our question earlier is like, is there a difference even between empathetic concern as it gets expressed through different generational viewpoints? You and I have done a couple of workshops on on the life experiences of different generations. I'm a boomer, a baby boomer. You're a millennial slash exennial. If I can out you on age and I out <laughs> myself on age. <laughs> We've been outed. <laughs> um, and I apologize if that's the wrong term. Um, but I was thinking about um, where did I get my empathy from? And I'm, I'm moving a little bit into what we thought would be our next topic, but um I think I have a great deal of empathetic concern and it moves me to action all the time. And I'm thinking, where the heck did I get that as a baby boomer? Um, I grew up um, just post-war, post-World War II. Uh, I, I lived with a, lar- a large-ish family in a small space. I heard my neighbors very acutely because we were living in close quarters. So I knew the grief and anger and rage um, people were going through post-war. There was the cold war going on. So from a baby boomer perspective, this is growing up just outside of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and a mom who had just literally been in the war in England. And so she had her own post-war experiences as well. And I watched, I learned to watch, I learned to be hyper-vigilant as a child because of what was going on. And I think that gave me um, a great deal of empathetic concern for the state of the world. Uh, in addition, I was growing up in a province that was dualistic, separated French and English, and I had empathetic concern for what I was hearing um, as blaming towards the francophones in the province. And I thought that can't be right. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder what from you, from I'll turn the question back to you as a, as a different generation from me in your own life experiences, where, where do you think your empathetic concern came from and what did it drive you to do? Mm. I, when Barb first posed this question, I just was snapping my fingers because it's such a great question. And I actually feel like I have two different answers. Um, one to the, kind of the generational influence. And then I think the other one coming from like the very personal perspective. So um, as a child, uh, I grew up in Iran and I was living there from the age of, well, three months old to about five. And it was during the Iran-Iraq war. And so I think living through a war at such an early age definitely deepened my ability and my capacity for empathy for people who are going through great deals of, of adversity. So where I've landed now is this idea that our deepest empathy comes from our greatest adversity. Mm. And the greater the adversity that you have come through, the deeper your empathy is for the people who are going through it. And it doesn't have to be that, you know, someone has gone through the same thing. That's not the point of empathy. The point of empathy isn't situational. It's, It's the connection that you have to something that someone else is going through. That's invoking the same emotion, right? The same Mm. feeling. So that feeling of being scared can show up in many places beyond just being in a war zone. Um, that feeling of, you know, 
that feeling of not knowing what tomorrow will bring can show up in many places outside of that particular situation. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's my first thought. And then my second thought from more of the generational perspective is growing up at that sort of tipping point of access to technology and access to um, information and so many perspectives at any given moment on any given topic definitely creates an invitation um, and sometimes an overload of learning about what everyone is thinking and feeling about all these different scenarios. And so I think if you are able to engage in learning about and learning, learning about someone else's perspective that is different from your own, that definitely has the ability to build your capacity for empathy. And then to be able to sit in that space of, of feeling with them, even if you can't, even if you haven't gone through that before, you, you can still sit in that space with them. Mm. Yeah, I'm reminded of several things. And I always like to bring it back to the facilitator perspective, but you and I did a workshop in Ottawa, Canada. And uh, we had a participant who was really interestingly difficult. And this person um, was just ranting and raving about how difficult their life was and completely disrupting the kind of calm state that we'd created. And I remember you saying to me afterwards, it was like you were in such deep empathy, you almost couldn't make a move. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. say anything because you could hear this person's pain. And, uh, and I was in, you were such deep empathy with this actual participant. And I was in such deep empathy with everyone who was experiencing this participant's behavior. And so I just kind of went right to action. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, so-and-so, you've done, said this and this and this, and we understand that's very painful. And do you realize, look around the room, look at the impact that you've had on the, the sacred space that we created. And I need you to stop it right now. <laughs> she said it in a brilliant way, just so the audience, like just so everyone listening knows, it was one of the most brilliant facilitation interventions I have seen in 10 plus years of facilitating well at the time i thought i inside i was going oh my what did i just do i just like basically just scolded this person in front of and it was so interesting we actually wrote it wrote a blog on this it was so interested what this person's reaction was as we went through the day because this person became so enamored with facilitators and how beautifully they had been handled in this situation, how all the other facilitators in the room, because it was a, the participants were facilitators, but they were reacting to this person in such an empathetic way. Once, once we allowed them to kind of see this person's pain, that this person went, wow, who are facilitators anyway? I love you. (laughs) And so the power of empathy was so amazing our empathetic, our emotional empathy, our, our cognitive empathy of this person's career perspective and what they were facing. It was just, just, just beautiful. So I do uh, want to just give that example because as facilitators, especially now when we all meet in these virtual rooms, uh, we have no idea what people are going through. We get a tiny more of a glimpse than we do with our colleagues at work because suddenly we hear they unmute their mic and we hear all these children fighting in the Mm. background 
Mm. or we hear somebody else having a conversation nearby, or we see their background and we notice they're in a tiny, tiny space with not very good sound quality. And that also brings up empathy for me and makes me want to be concerned for them. And I immediately go into worry, how are they concentrating with all this background family noise going on, for example? And that's something just to be very empathetic about as a facilitator, that we're in extraordinary circumstances and people are doing the best they can. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that because it's, it's bringing up for me one of our other questions that we have been kind of playing with, which is we're talking about empathy sort of on both the ther- theoretical level, but also on how it's getting applied and where we're seeing it in action um, externally. But I think that it's equally important to think about not just as facilitators, but just as human beings in this moment, how are we practicing self-empathy? It's the part of empathy we rarely hear about. How are we extending some empathy towards ourselves? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Barb. How are you practicing self-empathy? Mm. <laughs> uh, not very well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> and I love Marshall, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg's work. Um, he was the founder of Nonviolent Communication. And he said self-empathy was really a, a critical component of this and when you notice yourself i'll say just going down you know you can be a facilitator and you realize this is not going the way i want it to and then you can have this little self-empathy talk and go oh people are not really playing the way you thought they would play and people are misbehaving and i'm things my technology isn't working you know and oh you you should You could have this little kind of fawning tone of voice inside of yourself. Um, but I, I wanted to also talk about a kind of a realization that I came to this morning. Um, I have a listening practice, and it's, it's called constructivist listening. And peer listening, and we take turns just giving each other the same amount of time. And we talk about whatever is on, uh, up for us. And I kept on thinking, well, what? why do I have this deep, deep fear and grief for other people's situations that I, that I'm not currently experiencing. And I realized, Oh, there's just so much old life experience that is coming up for me. And so for example, when I was a child, you know, with seven people in a very small, small residence and food was scarce. And often we, we literally were counting the number of pasta pieces on our plates to see that everyone got the same amount. And I was in charge of that. And it was really hard to say, you only get 25 pieces of macaroni on your plate today. And uh, that's all, that's all there is. And you know, we look at each other, go, well, that's not enough for a kid, you know? Um, so, and we have a big joke in our family about that, but I, you know, I, I, I have that tremendous empathy for people who um, maybe they have no, income coming in now. They haven't gotten any government um, assistance and they are literally wondering when they're going to run out of their last box of pasta or their last jug of milk or whatever. And so I have great empathy for that. And that's because of that early life experience of knowing what hunger is. Um, Second life experiences when I moved to the United States and I lost everything a lot. Um, I, I, it was a choice we made, but I had no idea we were going to immigrate on nine 11 and every, the economy shut down in Oregon and our, the currency, the Canadian currency was worth 62 cents on the U S dollar. Whereas a year previous it had been on par a dollar for a dollar. 
So our house is worth almost nothing when we sold it. We came to an economy where houses were still expensive and four times the amount that we would have had to pay back in Canada. I had no ability to work. My husband had a, a fairly low paying job, which the salary was less than he had been making in Canada. And I'd taken myself from a very, very fulfilling, beautiful business experience to literally having no business, no ability to offer my skills, couldn't even get a credit card um, for a while. And so I have that empathy as well. And I know, so that makes me realize I have to go back and kind of revisit those experiences and completely try to heal from them before I can get over being almost paralyzed by my empathy. And I know that's why I chose to be a facilitator because I have so much empathy, but I can't be an effective ally if I'm caught up in my own drama around my early experiences. What do you say? What about your, (laughs) what about your practice of self-empathy? So my practice of self-empathy in in a nutshell is to go back and actually look at some of those painful experiences and share the stories, write about them, reflect on them, journal on them, do constructivist listening and just see what I can uncover to take the sting and the pain away from them. You? I would say that that is uh, pretty reflective of my, my process as well. I think the journaling definitely resonates with me. Um, and I think just taking the pause to do the healing that needs to happen. So I, I don't know that I would, I would say anything different um, on, that, on that part. But I think the part that I might add is I do think for those of us who are impasse, for those of us who are deeply empathetic, one, one suggestion that I know Barb, would, uh, Barb and I share is the importance of sort of getting your attention out. And so we'll explain what that means. When we're in the process of being deeply empathetic or deeply in a moment with someone or perhaps a group, um, and, and in this case, the collective, um, it does become very important to take some momentary bre- breaks to briefly get your mind out of and away from the thing that you're sitting with. And that is applicable to your own processing as well, right? If you are in the process of working with some, some old memory or some old moment that holds a lot of pain for you and you're really trying to work through that and heal from that, that's important work. It's also incredibly hard work. And sometimes you need to just give yourself a moment to sort of step away and then come back to it. And that actually can help, help bring you back to the situation, back to the quote-unquote work with a fresh perspective and with a renewed sense of energy. Otherwise, it's sort of continuing to take from you and not giving yourself an opportunity to replenish. And I think that too is part of um, both self-empathy and also just self-compassion. I wanted to just say one of the ways that I get my attention out these days because and it's a term that comes from the constructivist listening practice and from um, reevaluation counseling, but it's basically, as Rangane was saying, noticing that things are well right now. In this very moment, I'm okay. And I, I, I go outside and I just look at the beautiful spring growth that's happening around me. I look up in the sky and I see clear blue skies And that makes me profoundly happy that for this moment, there's actually not very much pollution going into the sky or this bird. I haven't heard this bird song this beautifully for a long time. And they're saying that even birds 
songs are changing as a result of having less ambient noise around them. And so that's, I, I find nature as a beautiful way to get away from the overwhelming sense of, of empathetic concern and grief and compassion. It's not that I don't want those, but I, I can't necessarily be an effective facilitator if I'm so deeply caught up. I need to be able to stand in the fire and think of that blue sky or that bird song. And that keeps me, keeps me very attentive and very present. Yes. And the power of presence and the power of mindfulness of the moment um, has never felt more important than it does right now. How to bring our, bring ourselves to this exact moment. And as Barb said, realize that perhaps it's possible that we are okay in this very, in this very instant, even if it doesn't feel like it going forward in this moment, we can find a little, a little pause. Hmm. So with that, we have a quote that we would love to leave you all with. It is by Peter Hans Kolvenbach, who is a Dutch academic. And this quote was actually written in reference to students, but we felt like it spoke so eloquently to empathy um, and felt very widely applicable to us right now that we would share it in conclusion of, of this episode. So I'll go ahead and read it. Solidarity is learned through contact rather than through concepts. When the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change. Personal involvement with innocent suffering, with the injustice others suffer, is a catalyst for solidarity, which then gives rise to intellectual inquiry and moral reflection. Students, in the course of their formation, must let the gritty reality of this world into their lives so they can learn to feel it, think about it critically, respond to its suffering, and engage it constructively. And again, that is from Peter Hans Kolvenbach. And we are so grateful to all of you for sitting in this space with us, for tuning in and to musing out loud alongside, alongside us. We mm. look forward to connecting with you all in our next episode. Barb, any final words? No, I just love in the quote, must, you, we must let the gritty reality of this world into our lives. Feel it, feel it think about it critically. Yes. So that's our homework for this mm. week. And we don't know how long season one will last. <laughs> <laughs> On that hopeful note. <laughs> but we're going to hang in there with each other and with you. Thanks Thank all. you. Till our next time.